Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Diplomacy Fails presents The July Crisis Anniversary Project A day-by-day account of the events that occurred 100 years ago Profiles The powers, plans and politics involved in the July crisis are very intricate and require a certain level of background information. These profile episodes will seek to investigate the background details of the key powers involved, giving you a unique profile of each one. In this case, the profile in question focuses on Austria-Hungary. The Habsburg family had been a staple part of European politics for what seemed like an eternity. For much of that eternity, the Habsburgs were in the ascendancy. At one point, Charles V ruled over Spain and the Holy Roman Empire, boasting a realm that would never again be replicated without the use of force. This Europe-wide rule ended in 1555, and the Habsburgs ceased to rule Spain after 1700. Yet the Habsburgs remained an integral part of the European order for the rest of the 18th and 19th centuries. Their prestige dipped somewhat with Napoleon Bonaparte's forced ending of the Holy Roman Empire in 1806, a conglomerate of German states that had always seemed to boast a Habsburg as its head. Even with this dimming though, the weight of the Habsburg name seemed to suggest a sense of longevity, especially with the defeat of Napoleon and the creation of the new European order balanced by a three emperors alliance between Prussia, Russia, and now, referred to simply as Austria, the Habsburgs. The three-way alliance was dedicated to the preservation of the old order, and to stand as a bulwark against any threats of the kind of revolution previously seen in France, such an alliance proved invaluable with the onset of the 1848 revolutions, an event which saw popular uprisings occur across Europe including Russia, parts of Germany, and in Austria's Italian possessions. Critical for Vienna was the issue of Hungary, a portion of Austrian imperial lands whose citizens made up just one of the numerous nationalities that inhabited Austria's wider empire. 
On the 15th of March 1848, Hungarian patriots presented the Austrian government officials with 12 points or demands, which were designed to bring about Hungarian self-governance. In the backdrop of the other revolutions occurring across Europe, and ones in favour of German unification to the north, Austria sent in an army to punt down the uprising, after initial negotiations broke down. The national Hungarian government resisted well, but after a year and a half, the Habsburg monarchy forcefully brought Hungary back into the imperial fold, installed martial law, and repressed further demonstrations. Austrian success, the new emperor Franz Josef no doubt understood, may not have been even possible for the Habsburgs had the Russian Tsar Nicholas I not marched 300,000 soldiers into Hungary to put the uprising down, as per the terms of their three-way alliance. The Habsburg difficulties in fighting the Hungarians had been seriously complicated by further revolts in their domains, and friction within their chafing minorities, who taken together outnumbered the German-speaking Austrians within their own empire. During the revolutions, it became more and more difficult to command and order around units composed of national or ethnic groups, especially when the commands involved crushing the uprisings of those in Hungary or Italy. Such difficulties were an ill omen for the future of the multi-ethnic, multinational, multi-religious and multi-layered Habsburg Empire. The closeness with Russia, engendered by the aid of the Tsar in ending the Hungarian threat, ended itself with the onset of the Crimean War in March 1853. The three-way Holy Alliance spluttered, coughed and died in the face of an Anglo-French declaration of war against Russia, to curb the latter's expansionist goals in the Black Sea. Tsar Nicholas I had expected Austrian aid, or at the very least a benevolent neutrality that would ensure a Russian free hand. However, Austria could not afford to offend the sensibilities of France and Britain, and so, alongside Prussia, it quietly reneged on their commitments to the alliance. Attempts by both the Austrians and Russians to press the other side with the appearance of armed forces along the border did nothing to increase their friendship, with the result that by the end of the war in 1856, the Holy Alliance was no longer Europe's guiding principle. Three years after that, Austria went to war with France, this time over the issue of Italian nationalism and the French Emperor, Napoleon III's, desire to see it come about. The war bore witness to a series of successive defeats for the once triumphant Austrian armies. Overcome and threatened with further war in Hungary, Franz Josef agreed to a peace, which established Piedmont as the dominant power in Italy, and would lead a decade later to its own royal family acquiring the position of Italy's monarchy. Having been left behind in its Italian affairs, Austria looked north to its German ones in 1864, when it was learned that Prussia had declared war on Denmark. The Danish-Prussian War involved everything that the Austrians no longer seemed to possess, leadership by a confident statesman and victory in expansion with further hopes for the country's national future. Led by Otto von Bismarck, Prussia seemed far removed from the junior partner in the Holy Alliance that it had once been. The issue now became German dualism, and the question of who would lead these Germans would it be Vienna and the Habsburgs, or Berlin and Prussia? Austria did not have to wait long for the answer, because in 1866, in a quarrel over the spoils that had been jointly governed in Danish lands, the two former allies went to war. The results were devastating. Though Austria's track record in the previous years had been less than stellar, it was still Europe's political and dynastic mainstay. 
The Germans, under the German Confederation that encompassed 36 German states, were ruled by its still towering influence and name value. To many Europeans, Vienna was the beating heart of Germany. The Habsburgs were the blood of Europe. It was anathema to suggest that Prussia, a state which was in its infancy, with only the 18th century to point to as its time of success, could soundly defeat Austria, detach its German allies, redirect their resources towards Berlin, and answer the German dualism question once and for all. Yet that's exactly what happened. Though European commentators predicted an Austrian victory, its multinational elements frayed under the onslaught of thoroughly drilled Prussian soldiers. While the Italians capitalised and drove the Habsburgs out of Venice, the jewel in Franz Josef's cap and a shining example of Habsburg prestige, Prussia flipped the North German states and besieged Vienna. After a decisive loss on the Battle of Koniggratz on the 3rd of July, the Austrians lost heart, and losses elsewhere hastened the end of the war. The peace that followed drew the ire of France, and Prussia would soon clash with it, but for Austria it meant the end of an era. As Prussia drew in the North German Confederation and established itself as the leader of the German states, it meant that Prussia had won the German contest. German states, for so long fixed with the idea of upholding the Austrian Habsburgs as their leader, now turned to Prussia to represent their interests. Prussia, its eyes on the remaining free German states, sought to realise its ultimate ambition of German unification into a German empire, an exercise which only left Vienna in the dust. It was a traumatic experience for Europe's oldest dynasty. Now the Habsburgs appeared threatened by dissolution and further revolts. Having lost both its German ambitions and Italian ports, there seemed little room for Austrian ambition in Europe. Yet, perhaps because of its multinational character, the expansion towards the Balkans, where a weak Ottoman presence had for so long balanced various peoples against one another in the name of its own declining polity, appeared to be a solution to the Habsburg dilemma. If the Habsburgs couldn't sit at the head of a German empire, then they would rule a Danubian empire that pushed into the Balkans. Yet this was the idea of Austria's imperial dreamers. It shaped with another idea, that there was little point in Austria continuing to assume the role of its own empire, and that to realise the goal of German unity, a merging with Prussia and its German clients, the Anschluss, was proposed. Amidst these competing ideas, would Vienna embrace its Balkan future or its German nationhood, was the elephant in the room of Habsburg prestige. How its now damaged state would stand the challenge by its empire's various national groups, now determined to exploit the weakness of a once great empire. Franz Josef seemed to answer this question for everyone, when in the Compromise of 1867, the Habsburg Emperor agreed to place his realm under the joint control of the Austrian-Germans, and the previously so troublesome Hungarians. This so-called Augs-like, or compromise, was even more significant than it sounded. Austria wasn't simply granting Hungarians more autonomy, or making a promise to defuse Hungarian agitation. The Compromise of 1867, coming a year after the Austrian defeat of Prussia, ended forever the sole rule of the Habsburg realm by the Austrians. In return for a granting of Hungarian authority over practically half of the Habsburg Empire, Vienna was guaranteed Hungarian support for the integrity of that empire. Now, as far as Franz Josef was concerned, Austrians would be supported by their former Hungarian rebels. 
However, what the emperor had failed to realise was that by giving the keys to the empire to Hungary, whose ethnic peoples made up only a seventh of the empire's population, they had created a monster. What had really been needed was the reimagining of Austria into a kind of federation, where every region and peoples would possess their own autonomy and answer in the end to the Habsburg monarch. This in fact would be the pet project, or perhaps pipe dream is more accurate, of Franz Ferdinand. However, in 1867, Franz Josef was seeking a quick fix, and reasoned that the best way to ensure the stability and security of the empire would be to reinvent the Habsburg's most troublesome rebel as its most determined partner. By creating a dividing line in the empire, a German-run Cis-Lithania and a Hungarian-run Trans-Lithania, named after the river Lytha that runs through the region, the Habsburg Empire now had two peoples of state, two monarchs, since Franz Josef was both emperor in Austria and king in Hungary, and two capitals, Budapest being added to Vienna. Josef, by signing off on the idea, likely thought that he was granting his empire a stay of execution. But where the Habsburgs may have been content to appease their own national elements, with successive Austrian statesmen only becoming more persuaded towards this policy, Hungary began its process of Magyarization, whereby all non-Hungarian nationalities within its new borders were forcibly repressed. The currency said it all. In 1902, a French visitor to the empire noted that even the banknotes were dualist. One side of the note was Austrian, with the amount spelled in German, as well as the empire's other languages of Polish, Italian, Czech, Serbian, Bosnian, Croatian, Slovenian, Romanian, and Ukrainian, etc. Flipping the banknote over revealed the other side of the note was Hungarian, which made sense considering the compromise. However, on the Hungarian side, there were no languages but Hungarian, as if to separate the accepting and conciliatory Austrian portion of the empire from the resilient and independent Hungarian. This led the French visitor to exclaim, Astonishing! For official Hungary, the nationalities do not even exist. By granting equal status to a people barely on par in terms of population share with their own, Franz Josef had hoped that this would persuade successive Hungarians to focus their energies towards maintaining the Union. Indeed, Josef was sort of right. Hungarians remained the most avid supporters of Austria-Hungary right up to the end. But whereas Josef hoped to balance Hungary against the rest of the empire's peoples, Hungarians hoped to reinforce and secure their position by the means of force, intimidation, and persecution. And, if all that failed, Budapest turned to nationalistic ignorance. It resulted in a siege mentality for the Hungarians, who asserted consistently the need to prevent further expansion for fear of the damage wrought by bringing more ethnicities into the empire and further diluting their demographic presence. The persecution was so bad that other minorities of the Habsburg Empire sought either to emigrate or place their trust and hopes in foreign powers, not Austrian, but that of Russia, or, especially after the game-changing Balkan Wars, the nation-states that these minorities upheld that they belonged to. Seen in this light, it's not hard to judge why many historians see the compromise as worsening rather than bettering the Habsburg's nationalistic problems. Within Hungary, alternative identities to Hungarian could acquire no foundations or satisfaction, and across the empire, they are prevented from doing so by the Hungarian blocking of any possibility of reform. The problem was, Hungary was not content to follow or even adhere to the Austrian sense of what the empire should be, 
and had shirked from any possibility that may make either Austrians stronger or Hungarians weaker, a policy often translating itself in foreign policy. Hungarian efforts to block any Austrian moves were made easier by the presence of two parliaments, another symptom of the dualism, one in Budapest on top of the original Reichsrat of Vienna. For decisions of state, the approval of both parliaments were needed. This explains why Austria did not launch a war of revenge against Prussia in the years after 1866, and why it did not join France against Prussia in 1870. Led into the compromise by the Emperor and motivated by its contents because it promised a quick fix and the possibility that Austria could return to prominence and attack Prussia, Habsburg statesmen were faced with the reality that by giving the Hungarians so much power, Hungary was content to use it for the benefit of Hungarians, not Austro-Hungarians. The compromise seemed to many in the years after as a rash decision that Vienna had to rectify, culminating in the creation of secret plans designed to crush Hungary, eliminate the threat posed by this inner enemy, and re-establish Vienna as the capital of the Danube. This plot, finalised in 1905 but concocted before that point, counted among its supporters Franz Ferdinand, the nephew of the reigning Austro-Hungarian Emperor. The duality of the Austro-Hungarian state was of course most obvious in its name, but it had the most notable impact on Habsburg foreign policy immediately after the Austro-Prussian War of 1866. While some Austrian statesmen planned to use the Hungarian Compromise to quickly prep the state for a war of revenge against Prussia, these Hungarians had other ideas. Almost because of their influence, Austria did not ask for a rematch with Prussia. Instead it watched as Prussia defeated France and then unified all of Germany under its leadership in 1871, when the German Empire was born. The subsequent years of diplomacy would draw Austria even further into Germany's orbit, thanks to the need of both for an ally. Bismarck's Germany, fearing a war of revenge, sought to combine the two German-speaking empires in an alliance, signed in 1879. The signing of the alliance had been made easier by previous events. The Congress of Berlin in 1878, that had ended the Russo-Turkish War of 1877, had seen Bismarck press for the granting of the Ottoman territories of Bosnia and Herzegovina to Austria-Hungary. Though Bismarck was seeking to grant these provinces under a strange agreement, whereby the Ottomans would still claim sovereignty but Austria would occupy them, it was still a gesture towards empowering the Habsburgs, which seemed to suggest that the two were moving closer together. Yet Bismarck's actions were nearly blocked by the Hungarian element, who tried to prevent the new lands coming under Habsburg control for fear of the dilution of their own ethnic influence. The influx of Bosnians would surely have concerned the Hungarians, but they are eventually pacified with an agreement that both Austrian and Hungarian officials would administer the new territory. Still though, for Bismarck, whose true aim had been really to balance Russian gains made in the war, the whole situation appeared ludicrous. Here he was, granting a state a prize, and yet the state in question was so divided it was barely able to accept it. It led him to comment, I have heard of people refusing to eat their pigeon unless it was shot and roasted for them, but I never heard of anyone refusing to eat it unless his jaws were forced open and it was pushed down his throat. Despite Hungarian opposition, the occupation of Bosnia-Herzegovina by Austria-Hungary began in 1878. It was seen within Upper Habsburg circles as the first step towards the realisation of the new Austrian destiny, that of a Balkan Empire. 
such dreams did appear possible in 1878, because only the weakened Ottomans, buffered by smaller states such as Bulgaria and Serbia, held the Balkan fort. The biggest challenge remained persuading the Hungarian element of the need to expand and strengthen the state with these conquests. Hungary proved in every sense the cancer of Habsburg policy, because the need to acquire the dual approval of Budapest and Vienna for all budgets, military manoeuvres, and underlying state policies, paralysed the country with indecisiveness and disunity at a time when Bismarck was creating for Germany a diplomatic web of alliances designed to secure its war gains and isolate France. The Balkans continued to plague not just Bismarck but also Habsburg mines when the Bulgarian crisis flared up in 1885. It came as a result of the great powers trying to partition Bulgaria, so as to prevent the latter becoming a large Russian satellite in the Balkans and empowering Russian influence. The various Bulgarian peoples, against the will of these great powers, rallied to a common banner in 1885 and declared independence. The declaration brought additional declarations of war from newly independent Serbia and Greece against Bulgaria. In the event, Bulgaria trounced Serbia, and the latter had to be saved by Austrian intervention. However, because the Russian Tsar was not on good terms with the Bulgarian ruler, no Russian aid was forthcoming, and the Habsburgs soon launched a coup, placing another nephew of the Habsburg Emperor on the Bulgarian throne, where he would sit until 1918. The whole event had been a whirlwind of nationalistic chaos and rhetoric, but it served to demonstrate that though diminished, the Habsburgs could still throw their weight around in a region, as well as convincing both British and French statesmen of the volatility of the region in general, and the need for a stabilising Habsburg Empire in the Balkans. Austria-Hungary closed out the 19th century, counting both Bulgaria and Serbia as reasonably close partners in the Balkans. However, this was largely due to the absence of Russia. Much like Habsburg's success in the 1885 crisis had been a result of Russian non-intervention. Subsequent years would prove that Habsburg's success was ensured only by Russian absence. This absence ended with the transformation of the European alliance blocs. As in 1894, France officially signed an alliance with Russia. The Russian Empire, for so long kept away from France by Bismarckian diplomacy, was now tied to France for the same reasons Austria remained with Germany. Necessity. It put in the oven a mould of Europe that would be set in stone in 1914, as the alliance bloc of the Central Powers confronted the then Triple Entente of Russia, France and Britain. In 1904, Japan attacked and destroyed the bulk of Russian power and prestige in Asia. In 1905, revolts across the Tsarist Empire reduced the monarchy to the brink of collapse, and only through the promise of reform and democratisation could the Tsarist regime be saved. Tsar Nicholas II, a figure presented to us in the histories as a kind but weak and indecisive man, could not boast the same Russian strength after the war as France had relied on before, and in the years immediately following the Russo-Japanese War, it seemed as though Europe was gearing up for a war where the emboldened central powers would attack the weakened Russia and overwhelm the now vulnerable France. The balance of power was thus crucially in favour of the Germans, and by extension the Habsburgs. In 1905, German interest in Morocco provoked the first Moroccan crisis, the results of which alienated British opinion and further engendered the hostility between France and Germany. Austria, as the only power to support German aims at the multi-power conference in 1906, 
remained true to its one major ally, but the results were mostly inadequate for the Germans, with the result that Kaiser Wilhelm II, having been misled by his advisers in the first place, was left feeling humiliated. The Habsburgs had largely gone along with the German aims because it was clear in 1905 that Germany was their one true ally on the continent. Italy, the third member of the Triple Alliance, coveted territory in Austria's Tyrol region to the south, making the alliance unsure with that state at best. While foreign policy remained uncertain and tied, literally shackled, to Germany out of necessity, domestic policy was less rosy still. Austria-Hungary, with its multinational elements, languages and religions, could have used perhaps the most ominous tool of the state in the early 20th century to achieve unity, the armed forces. The army could be used as a school of the state, whereby soldiers would be taught, whatever their ethnic origins, to speak German, revere the emperor, and appreciate the Habsburg Empire's numerous flavours. By the use of the army, one could persuade their citizens that, whatever their genetic makeup, they were first and foremost Austrians. Yet it was this very tool that the Hungarians attacked. By failing to approve military budgets, it ensured that the Habsburgs possessed one of the smallest armies in Europe, and the smallest in proportion to its population size in the world. In 1900, one out of every 132 men was a soldier in Austria, compared to one out of 65 in France, one out of 94 in Germany, and one out of 98 in Russia. Even Italy, so lauded with the label of the junior participant in the Triple Alliance, could boast a stronger recruitment per 100,000 men than the Habsburgs. In addition to this, Hungarian blocking ensured that Austrian military technologies, particularly artillery, lagged far behind other modern states. In 1903 came the final straw for many German Austro-Hungarians, as Hungary approved the addition of 24,000 recruits every year to the army, at a price of dramatically Hungarianizing the entire institution, with an effective nationalising of the Habsburg's armed forces as purely Hungarian armies were expanded, and the sense of a multicoloured identity within the Habsburg Empire was also to be ended with the plastering of Hungarian emblems over the old Habsburg ones. Hungarian was to be the official language of any recruit raised in Hungary, while the Hungarian army would be permitted to have its own artillery base. In addition, Austrian taxpayers would be forced to foot over a quarter of Hungary's bill, at an annual cost to Austrians of 40 million crowns, due to rise each year. Foreign observers appeared stunned by Habsburg concessions to its Hungarian problem. It not only made little sense, but it also meant that further minorities requested their own representation within the empire. Soon Czech soldiers were requesting their own emblems and command language. When Franz Josef refused to discuss such concessions, a level of resistance began to creep into the Czech and other nationalities. He began answering roll calls in their own language and singing their own national rather than Habsburg imperial folk songs on March. When it was revealed that Josef had approved the provision that freed Hungarians from learning and speaking German, a storm of controversy erupted in Vienna, as the Prime Minister, War Minister and General Staff Chief all submitted their resignations, which were all refused. In 1903 then, it seemed that, far from making the Habsburgs safer after their 1867 compromise, they had created a monster that wanted to establish for itself as much leeway as it could within the Habsburg Empire before tearing down the entire apparatus from within. A definite split was now clear. 
There were Austrians and there were Hungarians, but there was no such thing as an Austro-Hungarian anymore. Part of the terms of the Compromise of 1867 was that it was to be negotiated every decade, which meant that in 1907, Franz Josef was looking for a way to acquire a position of strength, so that the Hungarian blockade on Habsburg progress could be removed, and the Hungarianizing of Hungary's slice of the Habsburg Empire would end. Josef thought he had found his smoking gun with the idea of universal suffrage. This would, theoretically, mean that everyone in Hungary's administered territories would have equal say. Because everyone in Hungary's territories was not an ethnic Hungarian, Josef was confident that these non-Hungarians would side in the polls against the Hungarians, weakening Hungary's political base. However, if Josef had been paying attention, he would have noticed that Hungary's power was not based on the support of the public. It was instead founded on the power wielded by the Hungarian authorities, who ruled with an iron fist all lands they governed, as they sought to expel or repress any national identity but their own. Thus, when Franz Josef issued this democratic decree by means of an edict from the throne, what should have been a highly significant and progressive event for the Habsburgs became dizzyingly dangerous for its very existence. At home in Austria, where Josef likely had never really considered, focused as he was on the Hungarian issue, Social Democrats took 86 of the Reichsrat, or Viennese Parliament's, 516 seats, while petulant blocks of Germans and Slavs took the rest, and subsequently took their national quarrels to the parliamentary level. This would ensure that the democratic institution, meant to engender Vienna with a level of legitimacy, instead contributed to the decay of the state as national clubs were formed containing many of the 20 or so political parties that remained too small to govern, too divided to share power, and too big to remove. Meanwhile in Hungary, the decree was simply ignored for three years, and in 1910 when it was implemented, it was applied only to wealthy, educated Magyars. The failure of the democratic experiment led to Austrian Germans expelling their frustrations on the national groups they ruled. As in 1908, the Liberal Enlightened Language Law, which granted ethnicities the right to teach their own languages in schools and adopt their national language as their official first language, was repealed by pressure from German-speaking Austrians. It resulted in riots, or one notably severe one in Prague saw 300 killed. Furious crowds of Austrian Slavs tore down Habsburg flags and emblems, and sang Slav or even Russian anthems as they did so. It would likely have been an amusing sight for the Hungarians. Having tried to balance the empire's nationalities against Budapest, Vienna had instead been reminded of just how divided its own empire really was. Whereas the Hungarians wished to keep the apparatus together while it served their own interests, other nationalities not placed so... Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Advantageously and likely weary of the new repressive measures from Vienna, possessed no such loyalties, and would rather have seen the whole thing come crashing down. It meant that the Habsburgs were trapped between a rock and a hard place. Should they rely more heavily on the unpopular and privileged Hungarians, who remained loyal to the Habsburg idea only because it enabled them to further their own aims, or should Vienna appeal to the nationalities within its slice of the empire by means of concessions? Such concessions would no doubt weaken the empire's centralising features, but perhaps such reform could also save it. It was such ideas that Franz Ferdinand, the proposed heir to the throne of the Habsburg dynasty, developed, as well as those which involved the whole-scale invasion of Hungary and the installation in Budapest of a Habsburg official. Some later and contemporary figures would try and portray Ferdinand as an enemy of Russia, or the Serbs, or both. As a matter of fact, where Franz Ferdinand really felt a strong sense of dislike was for the Hungarian element of the Habsburg Empire. In October 1908, Count Alois Lexa von Arenthal was developing what he hoped would be a deal to reinvigorate Habsburg imperialism in the Balkans. Arenthal believed that Habsburg destiny lay in expanding south into the Balkans, creating a corridor through Macedonia and seizing Salonika, then the prize port of the Balkans. From there, Arenthal and those who brainstormed with him believed it was merely the question of using this new port to invest new life into Austria's declining regions, regions like Bosnia-Herzegovina, where any proposed budgets designed to improve the situation there for its inhabitants were blocked enthusiastically ensuring that the Habsburg occupation stagnated the economy there. It was through the acquisition of these key Balkan regions that the Habsburgs would reinvent themselves and reinforce the idea that they remained the gate to the Turks in Europe. The Habsburgs were to become, in Franz Ferdinand's words, Europe's bridge to the Levant and the Middle East. Internally, Hungary would have Croatia removed from its sphere of influence, and the Habsburgs would elevate the Croats to power-of-state status, with their own capital Zagreb, creating, as Ferdinand envisioned it, a triple monarchy, though he surely had a better name in mind for this creation than Austria, Hungary, Croatia. 
the Hungarian element would thus be curbed by teaming up with the Empire's other nationalities against them. Henceforth, Budapest would be outvoted by the other two capitals of Vienna and Zagreb, enabling the Habsburgs to flourish in their new role as Balkan superpower and administrator of the Great South Slav Empire, while their German ally remained the head of the German-speaking peoples in Europe. The time for transforming the relationship with Bosnia was now, Ferdinand was told, since, as usual, events in other parts of the world were suggesting the time was running out for Habsburg decision-makers, and this spurred the Emperor Franz Josef to sign off on the idea, though Franz Ferdinand remained sceptical. This time, it was the 1908 Young Turk Revolution, which removed the governing old order of the Ottoman Empire and replaced it with energetic new blood, determined to better Turkey's position. The Ottoman Empire would be decided, these new Turkish statesmen believed, by its ability to retain its influence in the Balkans. Retaining its influence, in this case, meant the ejection of the Habsburg occupation of Bosnia-Herzegovina and the reinstating of official Ottoman rule there. On edge at what this suggested, the Habsburgs turned to Germany for support, but the Germans, seeing the Ottomans as a bulwark against Russia, would rather see a resurgent Ottomans than a weakened one, and encouraged the Young Turks, eventually sending them military advisers. Thus, Count Arenthal was pressed to find an ally to suit the circumstances, and he found one in Russia. For six years, Arenthal had been Austrian ambassador to Russia, and felt that, after the loss to Japan, Russia would feel even more intensely than Austria the need to contain a resurgent Turkey that could overcome Russian plans for the region of the Balkans. In secret then, the two foreign ministers, Izvolsky and Arenthal, negotiated a deal whereby Russia would support the Habsburg outright annexation, in return for Austrian support of improved terms for Russian shipping in and out of the Dardanelles, a region of critical interest for Russia. It was the culmination, Arenthal believed, of his years of hard work that had aimed at securing a detente with Russia in the Balkan theatre. Agreements in 1882, and recently in 1905, had declared that both Austria and Russia would uphold the status quo. Here was an agreement to change the status quo, but that didn't necessarily matter to the Russian Tsar, so long as Russia could gain something. It's Dardanelle concessions in this case, in return. Such concessions would be of far more practical use to the Tsar than the impoverished backwater of Bosnia. And so the two foreign ministers met at the estate of the ambassador to Russia, Leopold von Berchtold, to hammer out the details. Behind closed doors, it seemed, the two foreign ministers could get on famously together, as if their states were not members of two rival alliance blocs. Yet, it was once the doors opened that the whole agreement acquired a whole new character, and had dramatic consequences for all involved. Though it promised so much, Franz Ferdinand, it seemed, was right to be sceptical. Izvolsky, though he spoke for his Tsar and advocated the kind of realpolitik benefits that Bismarck would have recognised, did not speak for the Russian people as a whole, and though Bosnia was nowhere near as valuable to Russia practically as lucrative new agreements with the Turks along its critical Dardanelle trade routes, such facts were overshadowed by the overriding ideas at the time of nationalism and the Slavic sense of mission. Far from ensuring that Austria would gain the ability to control and use the Slavs for its own benefit, the annexation placed it in the firing line of the Kingdom of Serbia, who in fact harboured the exact same aims as the Habsburgs, 
to drive across the Balkans, waving the flag of Slavic unification. The difference was, whereas the Habsburgs wanted the Slavs united under their rules, the Serbs wanted to be the force and face of this unification. They wanted to control it because it was part of their national destiny that had been extinguished so cruelly by the Turks in 1389. Whereas the Habsburgs wanted to expand in the Balkans because it would improve their imperial standing and impress upon their neighbours the existence of the Habsburgs as within the great power camp, the Serbs wanted to expand in the Balkans because it was their nationalistic right to do so. The two aims were incompatible with one another, and in fact required that one side either failed or achieved its aims without the possibility of middle ground. The relationship between Serbia and the Habsburgs had taken on a level of acidity in the months since talks aimed at bringing Serbia into the Russian fold had succeeded, and the former pro-Habsburg policy had been abandoned. The announcement of the annexation of Bosnia-Herzegovina in October 1908 merely took that acid, poured it all over the statesmen and the population of Serbia, and then challenged the young kingdom to respond. Or at least, it may well have done, since after autumn 1908, Serb attention was redirected away from questions over Macedonia and firmly towards the issue of Habsburg annexation in a region that was a portion of the Serb national destiny. By acting within their imperial interests, Habsburg policymakers had acted directly against the interests of Serbia. This, Serbian citizens, from its Prime Minister Nikola Pesic to its shady career soldier Dragutin Dmitrievich, argued, was a cause for removing the smoke and mirrors, and finally accepting the fact that the greatest threat to Serbia resided in Vienna. The Habsburgs had long had their eyes on Serbia. They had intervened to prevent the collapse of the Young Kingdom during the Bulgarian Crisis of 1885, and they had watched with trepidation as the pro-Habsburg royal family was brutally murdered in 1903. The latter event didn't necessarily mean the end of pro-Habsburg sentiment in Belgrade. In fact, the last Obrenovich king, Alexander, spent the last months of his life apparently trying to negotiate a new deal in St. Petersburg with the Russians after the death of his very pro-Habsburg father Milan in 1901. Because of his notable comment that the Habsburgs were the arch-enemy of Serbia, it is likely that Vienna didn't weep at his passing, however brutally it came about. The new Karad Yordievich line of Serbia received initially friendly Habsburg treatment, with Vienna recognising the new line before any power, and attempting to establish a good relationship with the new state in earnest. However, it gradually became clear that this wasn't the same Serbia of before. The new monarchy brought new ministers and statesmen to the forefront of Serbia who detested the Habsburg claim to Balkan rule. The Serbian press, free from censorship, began a defamation binge of Austrian intentions, resulting in a dramatic shift in the public perception of Habsburg policy in Belgrade. The failure to renegotiate new arms, trade and agricultural deals in 1905-6 provoked Serb statesmen to look to French and Russian backers, both of whom were more than willing to provide the loans and competitive tariffs respectively. The event that truly shattered the previously amiable relationship between Serbia and Austria, though, was the stunning revelation that Bulgaria and Serbia had signed a secret customs union. What Vienna feared most was the political logic behind such a move. It suggested the presence of a Balkan League directed against Ottoman and Austrian interests. Indeed, Vienna was right to fear the underlying implications of the trade deals, 
In September 1904, while operating in the utmost secrecy, Bulgarian and Serbian state officials presented the copy of the signed Treaty of Friendship and Alliance deal to its principal backers in the Russian embassies. Thus, despite an outward appearance of an Austro-Russian Entente, and despite the Russian occupation with Japan, as early as 1904, Russian policy was focusing on the construction of a Balkan League of notable anti-Habsburg tone. Thus, the annexation of Bosnia appeared to bring to the forefront the opportunity to focus such anti-Habsburg creations, especially after its co-founder, the Russian Foreign Minister Izvolsky, absolved himself of any responsibility for the annexation and declared that he had been duped. Izvolsky's about-face likely had more to do with his unawareness as to how drastically he'd underestimated the situation, rather than Arenthal's actual ability to somehow fool the Russian statesman into travelling first all the way to Berchtold's estate, then reading the terms of the agreement, and then signing on the dotted line. Not even British opinion, for a time occupied with the issue of the German naval race, was comfortable with the idea of a renewed Russian focus in the region. While British statesmen urged their French partners to restrain and embarrass Zvolsky, German statesmen stood confidently behind their Habsburg ally and sent the St. Petersburg note in March 1909, pressuring Russia to drop the issue and tell their Serbian satellite to back down. Under such pressure, and ill-equipped for a military showdown so soon after the loss to Japan, St. Petersburg backed down. The very fact that Russia was forced to back down and was thus humiliated appears to have made it easier to believe, in most capitals in Europe, that this had been the end goal of Habsburg policy all along. Certainly it led to a dramatic radicalisation of both Serb and Russian politics, and while the underground organisations of Serbia fermented, Russia sent its own radical Serbophile politician to Belgrade to act as Russian ambassador, Nikolai Hartwig. After the annexation, Hartwig was able to focus on the fact that 40% of the population of the Bosnian region had been Serbs, and such a negligible percentage, Austro-German, that to justify the act on nationalistic grounds, which was all that really mattered at the time to the Serbs, was laughable. Because Austria was acting in naked self-interest, and Serbia was able to cloak its naked self-interest in the idea of Serbian national unification, the relationship between Austria and Serbia reached a new low. Added to the decline was the clear fact that by sending Hartwig and removing Izvolsky, Russian policymakers were stating in plain terms their support for Serbia in the Balkans. Hartwig advocated Serbian expansion towards the Adriatic and closer ties to the Franco-Russian Entente so as to make essential the Serbian position in the Balkans. But Hartwig's greatest achievement for Russia must be considered his creation and cementing of the Balkan League, which in 1912 would launch a war of conquest against the resident Turks and change so completely the status quo that had kept the Balkans quiet for so many years. Although they were positioned in a straight line by Hartwig, it was the actions of Austria's Triple Alliance ally that pushed over the first domino. On the 29th of September 1911, Italy invaded Ottoman Libya, setting off a series of chain reactions that resulted in the First Balkan War, erupting in the following October of 1912. The numbers that each state at war with the Ottoman Empire, Greece, Serbia, Bulgaria and Montenegro, called upon to make up their armies startled the Habsburgs. Bulgaria fielded nearly 600,000 men out of a population of just over 4 million. 
Serbia possessed an army of 255,000. Large when one considers that the population of Serbia was just over 2.9 million. Greece, with a population of 2.6 million, was considered the weakest of the larger Balkan powers, though its navy made up for its small contribution of 140,000 men. Use of the Greek navy, the Serbs and Bulgarians recognised, was critical to defend against Turkish naval landings and to transport troops quickly across the Balkans and the Straits. The smallest state in the league, Montenegro, fielded an army of 10,000 out of a population of 255,000. The small, impoverished, mountainous kingdom of Montenegro, positioned maddeningly for the Habsburgs within striking distance of many indefensible Adriatic bases, was a firm ally of Serbia, and the King of Montenegro, in fact, was the father-in-law of King Peter of Serbia, as well as having marital ties to Italy's royal family and Russian aristocratic dukes. This King Nicola of Montenegro was in fact the third longest ruling sovereign of his day, in place since 1861, and he had grand plans for his small country, that were brought to life by previous crises in the Balkans, and the latest one here. What was most striking about the wars was the lack of Habsburg intervention. In the face of the crisis, and without German backing due to Wilhelm II's refusal to go to war for a few Albanian goat pastures, Franz Josef presided over a troubled military conference in autumn 1912, weeks after war had erupted in the Balkans. Konrad von Hotzendorf was present. Although he had been released from his position as head of the Habsburg Armed Forces in 1910, due to a combination of too much belligerency for Franz Josef's tastes, Conrad urged war against Italy in late 1911 while it remained distracted in Libya, and because Franz Ferdinand had promised to drop Conrad in exchange for Josef firing one of Ferdinand's hated statesmen. Conrad remained his belligerent self, but the fact was glaringly obvious by now to even Franz Josef that the Habsburg armed forces were hideously inadequate to combat the resurgent and flush with confidence Serbia, let alone Russia, at the same time. Major reforms were still required, and these were still being blocked to a maddening degree by Budapest. The rotting of the Habsburg armed forces was an uncomfortable fact of the late Habsburg Empire by 1912. Officer pay was the lowest in Europe, major investment was required in the face of new technology, and its multinational nature had been a complicating factor amidst all this. Language barriers were especially acute. German officers made up the bulk of the Habsburg officer corps, and they were required to speak the language of the men they commanded. This meant that, for example, a German officer commanding a Slovenian regiment would have to speak Slovenian to his soldiers with a degree of fluency. However, in reality, most Germans shirked on their language duties, and they tended to rely on cheat sheets, like Military Slovenian, a handbook, which contained such useful phrases as Shut your mouth! Don't speak unless spoken to! No smoking in the stables! And... Do you still not understand? It reduced the credibility of the claim that Germans and Slavs alike embraced the Habsburg Empire because of its numerous flavours, rather than being held back because of them. The infamous example many point to of the chaos that ensued when officers became mixed up in the heat of battle and were confronted with blank faces when they came across soldiers and attempted to address them, scrolling through the languages they knew in the order of fluency but still being unable to communicate effectively, may come across as funny to us, but it was, for the Habsburgs, a serious problem. 
Without the investment necessary, only paltry salaries greeted the few men that chose a military career. The army had lost and never recovered its prestige after the previous century's blows. Aristocratic families, and even those of upper-class peasant families, were now more inclined to seek employment elsewhere. By having the reforming plans blocked, citizens had no incentive to apply, which was exactly what the Hungarians wanted. As their forces degenerated amid such intrigue, Conrad was rehired as chief of the general staff in December 1912. His authority was waning though, despite his commitment to the war policy he had followed before and leadership of the war party in Vienna. In May 1913, it was revealed that a high-level counterintelligence operative, Alfred Redel, had been passing secrets to the Russians. Tied up with this scandal was a host of miniature scandals revolving around the homosexual liaisons of Habsburg officer classes. Revelations which horrified the staunchly Catholic Ferdinand and Josef. It shed an unflattering light on Conrad's abilities as an administrator too. How had Redel escaped the conservative net of the Habsburg's intelligence service? Furthermore, how had the Russian blackmailing of Redel escaped Conrad's notice? Conrad was said to be more focused on other aspects of its job, and maintained only a bare acquaintance with his senior military appointees. After returning to his post, Ferdinand had ensured that Berchtold would be there to curb Conrad's hawkish tendencies, which he still possessed. In early February 1913, Ferdinand reminded Conrad that it is the duty of the government to preserve peace, to which Conrad characteristically replied, surely not at any price. Ferdinand, likely tiring of Conrad's belligerence and of Berchtold's complaints against him, managed to overtly offend him during manoeuvres in summer 1913, when he sharply reprimanded his chief of staff in front of everyone for changing the military manoeuvres scheduled for that day. Conrad yelled back that he had changed them because they were totally out of touch with the realities of war, and that while Ferdinand was trying to give his family a good seat to watch the operations from, he was trying to simulate a real battle, and thus had to be able to improvise. Conrad stormed off the field, the final straw apparently being Ferdinand's calling him a Wallenstein. After a Thirty Years' War generalissimo, we are, I'm sure, all familiar with. It reflected Ferdinand's view of his chief of staff, as well as the divisions within their relationship. And this event during the manoeuvres drove a serious wedge between the two former friends. When Ferdinand informed Conrad of his planned trip to Sarajevo, it was accepted that Conrad's career was on its last legs. Since the Redel case, one of the Archduke's aides recorded, the chief was a dead man. It was just a question of setting a date of the funeral. Had Ferdinand survived the assassination attempt, it is almost certain Conrad would have been the scapegoat charged with failing to adequately ensure the Archduke's security. At the very least though, Conrad was necessary to Ferdinand because there seemed so few others who could replace him in the wings. The Habsburgs were definitively faced with a crisis. The Balkan Wars had destroyed any semblance of security in the Balkans and also ruined its plans for what were viewed as the Habsburg's imperial destiny. How was Vienna to claim its position as leader and controller of the Slabs when Serbia was able to stand, unified and sovereign in the region, spewing nationalist sentiment and triumphant rhetoric? With the complete collapse of the Ottoman Empire in the Balkans came the expansion of the Balkan League states at its expense. Serbian and Bulgarian territory most notably exploded 
with the former moving south into Kosovo and more than doubling the size of its realm, while the latter gained Thrace and thus a valuable route to the Aegean Sea. Greece acquired southern Macedonia, and Albania was recreated out of Ottoman control in 1913 and into an independent state. This last point was of critical concern for Vienna, since an Albania ruled by Serbia would grant the latter all the benefits of the access to the Adriatic that Nikolai Hartwig had so emphasised. It was surely the fact that Serbia was achieving what the Habsburgs had made as their aims after the deflating experiences of the 19th century which really hurt the most. If Vienna was blocked from its Balkan destiny, what path really remained open? As Italy gazed at Austria's Tyrol region and German-speaking nationalists continued to speak of completing German unification and Hungarian officials relentlessly blocked all hope of Austrian benefit in the regions it did administer and Russian war preparedness was rumoured complete, Perhaps the desperation present in the July crisis of 1914 is easier to understand. Habsburg in action was the result of a rotten system that was effectively ruled from Budapest. The forgotten story of World War I is just how under siege Vienna was from the Hungarians they had empowered in the 1867 Compromise. They really had created a monster and such a monster could only be dealt with by using other nationalities to balance Hungary out. Nationalities that the Serbs were absorbing. It was during this time that the plans for invasion and occupation of Hungary were furthered, perhaps with the view of implementing them if the Hungarian blocking, so pronounced in recent years between Hungary's national demands and its persecution of its own minorities, got any worse. Franz Ferdinand was a major exponent of this plan, and his anti-Hungarian leaning was public knowledge to Stefan Tisa, the Hungarian minister-president, who hated him for it, and saw Ferdinand's accession to the throne as a troubling event for Hungarian influence. During the Balkan Wars, military manoeuvres had not hid the fact that the Habsburgs did not intend to use the forces at their disposal. While a national energy propelled Serbia across the Balkans, Austria's minorities could not help but notice that its own foreign policy was far more timid. The Balkan Wars also reinvigorated the underground groups in Serbia, who were known to have expanded across their own borders and were operating clandestinely on Austrian soil. In the early days it was easy to discount the power and influence of the Black Hand. Conspiracy was an on-tap resource in Belgrade, and rumour was everywhere so long as the anti-Habsburg sentiments existed. However, concern grew as the reports on the extent of the Black Hand's influence over the state apparatus emerged. Especially disconcerting was the rumour that the well-known director of military intelligence, Dragutin Dmitrievich, who had had a prominent hand in the extermination of the Serb royal family in 1903, doubled as a Black Hand recruiter. If such a high-ranking official in Serbia could boast such a secret life, what did that say about the rest of the kingdom's statesmen? The Habsburg picture of Serbia's secret organisations grew worse with the Balkan Wars, as recruitment soared and its influence exploded in the face of Serb success. Berchtold was able to gesture to a level of success in October 1913 though, when, under threats from Vienna and promises that Berlin would support her from the German Kaiser, Serbia evacuated Albania, the newly created independent state that had been designed as a compromise in the region to please everyone partially and no one too much. 
The success of the threat convinced Conrad that it had been Russian fear of Austrian partial mobilisation that had done the job. But it had largely been a combination of Serbian success without foreign help and the fact that Russian policymakers viewed Serbian control of Albania as too much too fast for its Balkan satellite. Wilhelm II commented to an Austrian military attaché that, For once, Austria has shown her teeth. I hope she'll continue to do so in the future. Berchtold was able to congratulate himself that an ultimatum had proved successful, and that arms were not needed to secure Austrian satisfaction. Such a lesson would prove critical in the coming months. After the Albanian incident, though, affairs seemed largely to die down. Sending Franz Ferdinand to Sarajevo on the anniversary of the historic Serbian defeat in 1389 would certainly ruffle Serbian feathers, but underlying currents suggested that the two states may live in peace for the foreseeable future. In late May 1914, a prisoner exchange was arranged, as those caught by Austrian counterintelligence were released to Belgrade in exchange for those Habsburg agents imprisoned thanks to Reddell's info leaks. As summer approached, it was all quiet on the southern front. So long as the Sarajevo visit went off without a hitch, there seemed to be no reason for the atmosphere to worsen. After having fought two wars back-to-back, Serbian statesmen were notably less belligerent towards their Habsburg counterparts, and the crushing of a rumoured military coup led by Apis, Dragutin Dmitrievich, in May 1914, seemed to suggest a more moderate course of Serb foreign policy. What was clear to Berchtold, though, was that the Habsburg inaction in the face of further Balkan agitation could not suffice as state policy. If the Habsburgs were challenged yet again in the region, and yet again they stood idly by while Russia or Serbia gained, then the Habsburgs' survival, never mind destiny, would be further called into question. It was this fact that Berchtold pondered over when he was informed of the news that Franz Ferdinand had been assassinated in Sarajevo while attending an official visit to the recently annexed provinces. Ferdinand's trip had been designed to shore up support and ensure military preparedness, but Berchtold and Conrad were faced with the issue that their heir may have fallen victim to the very elements within Serbian society that threatened to overrun not just the Austrian ideas of imperialism in the Balkans, but also the very concept of the Habsburg monarchy. Franz Ferdinand was the first physical casualty of the Habsburg struggle in the Balkans, but as we have seen, he was far from the first actual casualty in the region. After years of inaction, blundering and misrepresentation, Habsburg prestige was as good as dead, and, far from eliminate the Habsburg presence from the region, the assassination of the dynasty's heir would in fact push Austria-Hungary into a corner, where its statesmen felt that they had no choice but to make the most drastic choice of all, war. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 